0: They were known as the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, a fledgling organization that would one day grow to become the formidable CIA. Yet during the Second World War, this organization was still new and tested and keen to make a name for itself. And so it was within the OSS that a secret group of scientists were tasked with developing dirty tricks and cunning weapons for the US and the Allies to help win the war. They were the Dirty Tricks Department. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and to help us explore the bizarre inventions and unbelievable missions put forward by this real-life Q branch of mad scientists, I'm joined by author and historian John Lyle. John is the author of The Dirty Tricks Department, published by The History Press, and it's with his help that we explore everything from silent pistols and radioactive foxes to bat bombs and bonkers strategies. I know you're going to love this one, so drop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to listen early and ad-free, and drop us a line if there's a topic that we need to cover. But now, here is John Lyle on The Dirty Tricks Department. Enjoy. Hi, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about this key area of your expertise. the secret missions, secret tactics, and secret weapons. And just mentioning these sort of topics makes me think of James Bond, of course, and the unbelievable mm-hmm. gadgets that Q, the head scientist who is in charge of Q Branch, created. And this is literally what your research focuses on. Investigating the real-life inventions and real-life missions of the real-life Q Branch. So tell us, John. Where did the real-life Q branch begin?
1: The one that I focus on is called the R&D branch, the research and development branch. This is a part of the OSS, which is the Office of Strategic Services. During World War II, the OSS was, like I said, kind of the precursor to the CIA. It was in charge of coordinating America's wartime intelligence. And the head of the OSS, William Donovan, wanted to start this organization in order to coordinate the different kinds of intelligence that he thought President Roosevelt needed during the war. There were other intelligence branches during World War II that were somewhat doing this. There was army intelligence, naval intelligence, but Donovan wanted one organization that coordinated and collected all of it and that could inform President Roosevelt on what he found. Now, Donovan took this beyond just intelligence, though. He wanted his organization, the OSS, To not only collect intelligence, but to distribute propaganda, to spread disinformation, and to sabotage the enemy in Europe and in the Pacific. And so one of the branches of the OSS that was created to sabotage this enemy was this R&D branch, the research and development branch. And its responsibility was basically to create the secret weapons, gadgets, documents, disguises that undercover agents would need in their sabotage missions or even espionage missions. And so the head of this branch, Stanley Lovell, is the guy who essentially figured out the different secret weapons that were needed and figured out how to get them abroad. And so that's what this branch was in charge of.
0: Ooh, I'm intrigued already. So let's leave the James Bond analogy to one side because the purists are going to be very clear about the fact that we're talking about the US and we're talking about the US during <laughs> yeah. the Second World War. But let's focus in on William Donovan. Now, I think I recall some research about William Donovan. This is this wild Bill Donovan, who was a World War I veteran.
1: That's exactly right. This is Wild Bill Donovan was his nickname. He was a World War I war hero. He was basically the most decorated American soldier in World War I. He won the Medal of Honor, which is the United States' highest military decoration that you can get. And so he was a very well-known figure, especially after World War I. After that, he ran for the governor of New York, trying to succeed Franklin Roosevelt, who became president. Now, he lost his election for governor, but he became a very well-known lawyer, and he had connections to Roosevelt anyway. They're both from New York, so they knew each other. And so when World War II came around, Donovan had the ear of the president and was nagging him. You need to create an organization that's dedicated to intelligence, and that's the origins of the OSS.
0: So Wild Bill was a survivor, most literally from surviving the First World War, where I think he was injured as well, but also politically he's a survivor and he's given this task to build this whole new organisation at a time when the United States is, well, struggling with its intelligence and relies a lot on the British at this point in time. So you mentioned that he recruits
1: a key figure. Who is this? Yes, the figure that I mostly talk about in this book, the head of this R&D branch, is Stanley Lovell. Stanley Lovell is a chemist from New England, from around the Boston area. Now, before the war, he's just an ordinary industrial chemist. He's working in shoe and leather factories, figuring out how to turn their waste products into profitable products that they can sell. When the war starts, he happens to be colleagues with a man named Venever Bush. Venever Bush is kind of Franklin Roosevelt's unofficial science advisor. And through Venever Bush, Lovell kind of gets recruited into the OSS. Bush tells Donovan, hey, I know this chemist that could probably help your organization. You should hire him. And so that's how Donovan recruits Stanley Lovell. When Donovan recruits Lovell to join the OSS, Lovell shows up at OSS headquarters. No one's really around. A security guard leads him into this barren room. He sits there for a while, not knowing where he is or what he's doing. And then open the door opens, and in comes William Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, this huge towering figure with a Medal of Honor lapel pin strapped on his chest. And he walks in and he says, Lovell, you're going to be my man. I want you to be my Professor Moriarty, the nemesis in Sherlock Holmes. He says, basically, I want you to create all the underhanded tricks for the OSS during this war. I need your expertise. Will you join me? Lovell thinks it over for a little bit, and he's actually a little bit conflicted because he has a scientific kind of ethos to do good for the world, and he's not sure if he wants to use that to create deadly weapons. Eventually, Donovan convinces him, though, that you need to join this effort and create these weapons for the OSS, and so he does. And part of the major arcs of this book is seeing Lovell's trajectory from someone who's reluctant to engage in these kinds of dirty tricks in the beginning to someone by the end of the war who's advocating for the use of what we would call weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, biological weapons, all kinds of stuff, the atomic bomb. So that's one of the big arcs is Lovell's trajectory throughout this. No one wants to be
0: Professor Moriarty, do they? They want to be Sherlock Holmes. That's the problem there. But these two come together, this genius chemist and this war hero, and you have this office of dirty tricks, as you call it, in your book. So take us through some of these core weapons that they were able to develop.
1: Yeah, one of the earliest weapons that they develop is what's called a time pencil. This is actually inspired by the British. Starting the... R&D branch of the OSS, Stanley Lovell didn't really know what kinds of weapons to create. He had never been in this business before, so he actually went to England and got some of the scientists working with the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, to give him tips on what they're doing so he could get inspiration. But when Stanley Lovell gets back to Washington, D.C., he and the colleagues that he recruit one of the first things they create is the time pencil. This is a pencil-like device that you can ignite, or you can set it, and it acts as a timer. So if you want to set it on an explosives and put those in, let's say, a bunker somewhere or a warehouse or attach it to a vehicle, then after a predetermined amount of time, the time pencil will explode, it'll set off the explosive, it'll destroy the vehicle or the warehouse, and meanwhile, the saboteur who plants it has enough time to get away and establish an alibi across town. That's probably one of the simpler devices that the R&D branch creates, you could use the time pencil in conjunction with a lot of other weapons. Though another one inspired by the British is called the limpet. The limpet is a kind of mine that a saboteur could attach to the bottom of the ship, unsuspected. And they would attach the limpet. Attached to the limpet would be a time pencil. The saboteur could set the time pencil, row away, establish an alibi, and the limpet would explode, destroy the hull of the ship, and sink it. Those are a couple of the early weapons of the R&D branch. Well, did they work? Do we know any missions where they were a success? Limpets especially. These are one of the more successful weapons that are created by the R&D branch. They sink several ships. Time pencils are used in conjunction with so many different weapons that they're very successful. That's not to say that all these weapons are successful, though. Some of them... It's Stanley Lovell, at some points, is just throwing things against the wall and trying to see what sticks. A lot of the things he does out of desperation. You've probably heard the phrase desperate times, Calls comes from desperate actions, desperate times call for desperate measures. That's what Stanley Lovell is doing. He's creating all kinds of weapons, not knowing that they'll help the war, but thinking that at least there's a chance that they might. And if there's a chance, he might as well create it. So some of them are successful, some of them not quite. Okay, then. So how desperate do they really get? How crazy do these weapons get? The most desperate, the most crazy, to me by far, is an operation called Operation Fantasia. Operation Fantasia is the brainchild of a businessman who got recruited into the OSS. His name was Ed Salinger. Ed Salinger was an American businessman who did a lot of business in Tokyo, in Japan. And so throughout his years of business, he had picked up Uh, some knowledge of Japanese culture. He knew the Japanese language. He knew Japanese religion. He knew Japanese culture in general. And so he was recruited by the OSS because these are very valuable things to have when your enemy is the Japanese. For the OSS, Ed Salinger comes up with a psychological warfare technique that he thinks is going to win the war. Again, probably the most outlandish, desperate thing happening within the OSS. His idea is to make use of... A superstition within the Shinto religion. Within Shinto, there's this idea that there are animal-shaped spirit beings that are called kitsune, and a lot of times they take the shape of foxes. So these kitsune, these kind of glowing spirit foxes, presumably walk around Japan and they represent bad omens. If you see one of them, this means that something bad is going to happen. At least this is what Salinger thinks of the Shinto religion. And so when he gets to the OSS, he proposes that what if we create fake kitsune? What if we create fake glowing foxes, put them in Japan, and then the Japanese soldiers are going to see them? They're going to become demoralized because this represents a bad omen, and maybe they'll give up the war. Stanley Level in the R&D branch, desperate for anything that could help them win the war, seizes on this idea and they decide that we're going to create these fake glowing foxes. So they actually capture several live foxes, and in order to make them glow, they take radioactive paint from the American Radiation Corporation, and they literally paint foxes with this paint to make them glow. Now, to see if this would actually work, the R&D branch does a couple of tests. Can foxes swim is one of the questions, because in order to get these foxes to Japan, you're going to have to take a ship close to Japan, drop them off in the water, and the foxes will have to swim to shore where maybe they'll scare some soldiers. But can foxes even swim? And so the OSS got several of these foxes, they painted them with this glowing radioactive paint, and they towed them into the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. And they threw them overboard when they got there. Now it turns out the foxes actually did swim to shore. They swam back to shore. But when they got there, all the paint had basically washed off and they licked off the rest of the remaining paint, so that wasn't quite effective. But there were still some ideas that maybe this could go forward. Maybe we could drop these foxes on land instead of having them swim, so on. But one of the main questions to still answer was whether these glowing foxes would actually scare the Japanese. It's one thing to know that, okay, this is a superstition, but does it actually scare people? In order to find this out, Ed Salinger hosts an experiment. In the middle of Rock Creek Park near Washington, D.C., he gets several of these captured foxes painted with glowing radioactive paint, and he releases them in Rock Creek Park to see if it scares Americans. His idea is that if these glowing foxes scare Americans, well, surely they're going to scare the Japanese who have this as part of their superstition and the Shinto religion. So he releases these foxes in the park, and lo and behold, a lot of people get scared. <laughs> There's reports in newspapers afterwards saying people ran away with the screaming jimmies. Apparently, they see these foxes and start running all around. So Ed Salinger thinks this is great. This indicates that Operation Fantasian is really going to work in Japan. It turns out, though, that the operation never really got that far. They did several of these experiments, but toward the end of it, they realized it was fairly impractical to bring these foxes to Japan. Did it really seem like this is the thing that's going to end the war? By the end of the war, when the atomic bomb was almost ready to go, they canceled the program, and Stanley Level, he kind of looks back on it and says, Basically, what were we thinking? Did any of us have some kind of like logical reasoning through this? We were just grasping at straws here. And so they end up canceling the program. Now, Ed Salinger actually had a few other ideas to take Operation Fantasia even further. So before it was canceled, one of his ideas is that, okay, what if we can't get live foxes ch- to Japan? If we can't do that, maybe there's another way we can prey on this Shinto superstition. What if we stuff a fox and taxidermy it? So we have this stuffed fox. What if we paint it with glowing radioactive paint? So it looks like one of these kitsune. What if we attach it to a balloon and have it fly over Japan so everyone can see it? And even more terrifying, what if we attach a human skull to it? And the skull the jaw of the skull opens and closes as if it were talking and we're going to blast a program, audio. The jaw is going to open and close and there's going to be audio blasting saying, essentially, you need to lay down your arms and give up this war. So that's Ed Salinger's kind of ultimate idea. We're going to take this taxidermied fox, cover it in glowing paint, attach it to a balloon so that it looks like it's flying, attach a human skull to it, and blast audio, and that's really going to scare the Japanese. So that's his ultimate creation of Operation Fantasia. Again, that never goes into the field, but it shows the kinds of depths to which this R&D branch is willing to go in order to find ideas that could potentially have some kind of effect in this war.
0: So when I asked a question about the craziest idea, I didn't think we'd be talking about radioactive foxes. But we're going to continue this along because I am absolutely loving this. Now, what about their biggest failure? What would you say, when it comes to actually trying to apply these into practice, which one was a monumental,
1: absolute catastrophe? I think one of the biggest failures... It's an ironic failure, and I'll explain why it's an ironic failure. One of the biggest failures is probably... What's known as the Bat Bomb. The Bat Bomb. This is probably one of the more famous of the inventions that's created by this R&D branch. The idea came from a man named Little Adams. He was a dentist in the United States. He's not even a chemist or a scientist or he doesn't have weapons experience or anything like that. Prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that brought the United States into the war, Little Adams had gone to Carlsbad Caverns, where there's a colony of millions of Mexican free-tailed bats. And he was just a vacation. He didn't think much of it. But after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, he wanted to dedicate his life to service to his country to help win this war. And he was thinking to himself, what can he do to make a difference? And he thinks back to his trip to Carlsbad Caverns, and he realizes, maybe I can invent a device that can help the United States. This is going to become the bat bomb. After seeing these bats in the caverns, he realizes, what if we strap incendiary devices— like devices that can produce fires, we strap those to the bats, we release the bats over Japan, and the bats will naturally roost into areas like warehouses or houses or wooden piles where They will explode and they will create fires and these fires will destroy a city. Now, Little Adams thinks that this is a great idea because instead of just dropping bombs over a city, which are indiscriminate and you can't really target them that well, these bats are like heat seeking missiles. They will go directly to where you want them to. They will go right into buildings to roost and then they will blow up and set those buildings on fire. How does that turn from an idea that Ed Salinger has into actual working prototypes that we'll talk about in just a second? Ed Salinger- Yeah, who greenlights that one, John? (laughs) Yeah, it turns out it's the most important kind of person in the country. It's Franklin Roosevelt himself. The way this eventually comes about is that Little Adams had previously invented a, a device called an air mail delivery system. This is like a plane that could fly over the countryside And it would drop a hook, and the hook would snag packages, and then the crew of the plane could reel in those packages. That way the plane wouldn't have to stop. This is to speed up the delivery of mail. Now it turns out, Little Adams gave a demonstration of that system to Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of President Franklin Roosevelt. So he was in her good graces. When World War II comes along... He has this bat bomb idea. He gives the proposal to Eleanor Roosevelt. She gives it to her husband. Her husband kind of glances over it and sees that maybe there's something here. Who does he give it to? He gives it to William Donovan, the head of the OSS, and says, your organization does stuff like this. Figure out how to see if this is anything useful. On Franklin Roosevelt's note to William Donovan, he emphasizes about Little Adams, this man is not a nut. Look into this, there might be something here. So who does William Donovan give this proposal to? Stanley Lovell, who's in charge of the R&D branch, the one OS branch capable of even inventing something like this. So that's how Stanley Lovell ends up with this bat bomb proposal. How is he going to do this? He recruits several bat experts, several people who know a lot about bats, who can capture them, and then they can experiment. Another important person he recruits for this is a guy named Louis Pfizer. Lewis Pfizer is the inventor of napalm. So this is a, like a jellied gasoline that attaches to anything that it touches, and it burns very hot. So he invented napalm at Harvard a few years earlier. He's a chemist. Stanley Lovell knew of him, and Stanley Lovell recruits him to join the OSS. Now that he has Louis Pfizer, he tells Louis Pfizer, I need you to invent a very tiny incendiary device with napalm that we can attach to the bats. And so that's Louis Pfizer's task. So he actually invents this device. It's a small, just little incendiary, almost like a wallet that you can attach to a tiny bat. And he gets several of his colleagues to go to Carlsbad Caverns and literally swing around nets that they catch the bats in. They do several tests with these bats. At first, they don't attach the napalm devices to the bats because they want to just see if you artificially cool bats, The idea is that maybe we can put them in a hibernative state to make them fall asleep. And then we can put them in a plane and we can fly them over Japan. So to see if this would actually work, they put these bats in a kind of hibernative state. And it turns out the bats that they were actually using, Mexican free-tailed bats, don't hibernate. They actually fly south for the winter. So that didn't really work too well. But anyways, they get these bats groggy put them in a plane, they fly over the desert just to drop them to see if they'll actually reawaken, and it turns out on this first test, the bats had been cooled down too much, so they stayed frozen, and they just smashed into the desert ground, and that was that for that test. So that test didn't work too well, but the idea, Stanley Lovell thinks, there still might be something to it. So for the next test, they actually have a successful test where they're able to drop bats, they reawaken, they fly around. Lewis Pfizer decides he wants to do an actual test with his napalm devices to see if, you know, everything works in conjunction with one another. The bat, the napalm device, the time pencil that's going to set off the napalm device. So he attaches to several bats, the napalm device, the time pencil, and they cool them down. And they're taking some pictures, but then they realize that the bats start waking up quicker than they expected. And they actually fly away before they can catch them. And they have these napalm devices strapped to them with the time pencils. It turns out the bats fly into a barracks, they fly into a control tower, and they blow up and burn the entire thing down. So... But this is a terrible success, John! Exactly! When earlier I said that it's an ironic failure, it's ironic because it actually worked! (laughs) In the test, these things actually worked, the bat bombs. But it turns out that the project never went to japan by the time that it was actually ready there was another explosive device the atomic bomb that had been perfected and so the united states chose to go with that instead to the everlasting chagrin of little adams who thought that the bat bomb was really the way that we should have won this war
0: so we've had flying radioactive foxes and bat bombs both which could have been alternatives for the ultimate atomic bomb, the absolute weapon that was used to try and end the war. But, as you said, both of these are, in many ways, failures. So let's finish on a positive note. What was their
1: greatest success? I think, probably by far, the greatest success of the R&D branch, this dirty tricks department, is the disguises and documents that they crafted for undercover agents because this enabled undercover agents to actually do their espionage abroad to actually get to the places where they need to conduct their sabotage so i think that was what's really useful from the r d branch some examples of the things that they created for like camouflage disguises and documents are some of the disguises themselves are fairly simple this r d branch created ways to make yourself look like a, it could be anything, like a fisherman from the middle of Germany or a soldier or anything. So some of the tricks that they used, if you wanted to look older, you might whiten your temples with some whiteout. If you wanted to change your gait and change how tall you were, you might stuff your shoes with some newspaper. You might take some charcoal and put it into the lines of your face to make yourself appear older. Now, it wasn't only simple tricks like this. In order to create the disguises for these undercover agents, the R&D branch would actually collect authentic clothing from European immigrants coming to the United States so that you would actually have authentic clothing. If anyone questioned you, look, I'm European. I've got the clothing to match. There were several ingenious tactics that they used in conjunction with these clothing and these disguises. So, for instance, if you wanted to sneak a message into enemy territory, and you're an undercover agent, you're going in disguised, how could you sneak a message in? One way would be to—this was maybe the most ingenious way, I think. It's simple, but it's brilliant. Say you have a female agent, and she has a tube of lipstick— One thing you could do is melt down the lipstick into the wax, put the secret message into the lipstick tube, and then recast the wax, the lipstick, into the shape of lipstick around the message. So if you open the lipstick tube, it looks just like lipstick, but inside is the secret message. There were several ingenious tricks like that that were used to sneak these messages abroad. So that was the disguises that the R&D branch created for these undercover agents, one of the other very useful things that the R&D branch did was hire people to forge foreign documents like passports, travel tickets, train tickets, ration tickets, even foreign currency. In order to recruit these forgers, Stanley Level would go to prisons around the country and look for people who had tried to forge government money or bonds or anything, and he would recruit them to help the OSS in exchange for maybe a reduced prison sentence or something like that. One of the people Stanley Lovell recruited was named Jim the Penman, and it was said that he was so good at recreating signatures that he could have one of his colleagues sign their name on a page, and he would recreate their signature up and down the page, and he would bet them five bucks if they could pick out their original signature. If they couldn't, then he would get the five bucks. If they could, he would give them the five bucks. He won more often than not, but that was his specialty, recreating signatures. Now, there were some people who worked with the OSS who didn't really like this tactic of recruiting prisoners in order to do the forging, One of them said that he didn't like the idea because how good could they be? They got caught. So they were caught the first time and they'll probably get caught again. But Stanley Lovell nevertheless needed help and so he recruited some of them. But again, I think these are probably the two most important things the R&D branch did, the disguises and the forged documents, not because they were explosive or as exciting as maybe some of the other weapons or as crazy as some of the other ones, but because they were very practical. This is what allowed undercover agents to go abroad disguised and either conduct sabotage or train resistance forces or conduct espionage, so this was very useful. Wow. And I can only assume that there are an untold number of missions, many that
0: we will never find out about, where this sort of research, this sort of invention was absolutely vital to mission success.
1: Yeah, there have to be. One of the exciting but frustrating things about working with these intelligence organizations like the OSS or the CIA is that it's really exciting to find documents that discuss these undercover missions or these secret weapons and disguises and documents going to the National Archives to do research search for this project was really fun because you never know what you're going to find. But on the alternative side, on the other hand, the frustrating thing is that a lot of these documents, I don't know if they're classified. I don't know if they were destroyed. I don't know where they. So it's like there has to be a lot of stuff out there that I don't have access to, but I just know there's something that would make for a great story. (laughs) But that's just the plight of the historian. We are slaves to the sources that are handed to us. John, that is also the wonder of it and the
0: magic of it as well. When you go into those archives, you never know what you're going to find. But by the sounds of it, you've already stumbled across so much amazing content. And I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. So if our listeners want to read more about this and go into more detail about all of these secret missions, what is the name of the book and where can we buy it?
1: Yes, the name of the book is The Dirty Tricks Department. Stanley Lovell, the OSS, and the Masterminds of World War II Secret Warfare. So The Dirty Tricks Department. You could find it online. If you have a local bookstore who might stock it, I would suggest going to the local bookstore. That's always nice to do. But you can certainly find it by searching online. If you want to keep up with me, you could follow me on Twitter. That's at John Lyle, L-I-S-L-E. And I don't post that often, but when I do post, it's usually cool things that I find in the archives. So if you want to see the pictures and the documents that a historian discovers in the archives, that's probably a good place to look for it. John,
0: perfect. I can't wait to get you back on the podcast to talk about your next book. But in the meantime, everyone go out there and buy John's new book. There's a link in the show notes thanks for listening but before you go a reminder that you can now follow along online on twitter at historyhitww 2 on instagram at james rogers history and on tiktok also at james rogers history you can also subscribe to our free warfare wednesday's newsletter via the link in the show notes